If you have your Bibles, turn with me to uh, John chapter 3 and verse number 11. We have worked our way through verses 1 through 10 of this third chapter and this amazing discussion between uh, Nicodemus and Jesus. The subject matter of the conversation up to this point has been about being born again, about being born from above, and how it is wholly and completely a divine work of God. Sovereign grace, sovereign power. The the reality of regeneration, remember synonymous with born again, born from above, is not, not a mixing of the will and power of man along with the will and power of God. That's the most important thing you need to understand about being born again. It is a singular work of God by which He draws a sinner with an effectual, irresistible call, regenerates that sinner, brings him to spiritual life as he was naturally spiritually dead, and then He justifies that sinner and sanctifies that sinner and then ultimately glorifies that sinner. That's the golden chain of redemption that you can find in Romans 8. And remember that Jesus uses the illustration of birth in the conversation that we looked at to demonstrate on purpose that being born again is not something that we can do any more than we participate in our physical birth. Now, I highly encourage you, if you missed that message, uh, you can go back on our website. You can either listen to it on our Providence Pulpit podcast, or you can watch it on video from October 29th in the com- the main part of the conversation with Nicodemus and Jesus. I encourage you to listen. It's a very important text. So we went through that discussion. But today, Jesus is going to continue to speak to Nicodemus starting in verse 11. But he's going to go beyond Nicodemus here. As you're going to see, he's going to start using plural language that, that broadens out beyond Nicodemus, maybe, maybe to anyone else who might have walked up, maybe some of his disciples walked up, we don't know. But for sure, to everybody else who would ever read this in human history and scripture. So it moves to the plural. After verse 9, I want you to notice in the text, Nicodemus has nothing else to say. So let's just start with Jesus speaking here in verse 11. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. Now that's an indication that that at that moment, Nicodemus did not accept what Jesus said about the new 
birth. That's kind of the, the post-mortem on that part of the conversation. Jesus is saying, you didn't accept it. Remember, Jesus had asked him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. And, and, and we went over that. His, his ignorance is the product at this point of unbelief. So he's not yet a believer at this point, but he will be later. Go back and listen to the sermon if you didn't hear it. Now let's go on with this whole text. Look in verses starting in 12 and we'll go through 21. Jesus speaking. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the son of man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up. That's speaking of his crucifixion. So that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment. That light has come into the world And men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Now, there's one word that should just be jumping off the page to us in this text, and it would have to be the word believe. Because we see it seven times in this text. In the first ten verses, we saw the term born again five times. Okay? So the theme of the first 10 verses is regeneration, something you can't do. That divine, sovereign, supernatural, miraculous work done by God. And the theme here in our verses for today is faith, believing. There's a classic term used to describe the doctrine that is taught in verses 11 through 21, going all the way back to the time of the Reformation, when there was a great clarification of the gospel in the 16th and 17th centuries. And out of the Reformation came what came to be known as the five solas, which became the identifying benchmarks of the Protestant Reformation. If you went to our conference at Here We Stand last year, we did a whole conference on the five solas. The preachers did a great job. But let me give you a little bit of background here. The solas are Latin phrases, which, and maybe R.C. really does forgive me now because he likes to use the Latin. He likes, I think, when preachers do use the Latin. Anyway, 
upon which Protestantism is founded. These Latin phrases. These phrases really give us a, a, a really good summation of the biblical gospel and understanding. First of all, the reformers came up with sola scriptura in the English, scripture alone. I know most of you know this, some of you may not. They affirm that there is only one divine revelation, scripture alone, and they did that over against the tradition of the Catholic Church and anything that the Pope said, ex cathedra. And what that word means is basically, officially speaking for God, the Pope does. Okay, you understand, this is a protest against the Catholic Church's doctrines of the Reformation. Next, they gave us sola Christus. And that is the doctrine that salvation comes through Christ alone and no one else. Next, there was sola gratia, grace alone, that salvation is by grace alone, not by any effort or works of man. And then the doctrine that we see in our text today is sola fide, faith alone. So salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And lastly, number five, soli deo gloria to the glory of God alone. Every Christian should know and be able to repeat and understand fully and completely the five solas of the Reformation. So today we're looking at sola fide, faith alone. And of course, this is familiar territory for us. I, I said it earlier, sola fide and sola gratia are found together in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. Look on your screen or in your Bible. For by grace... You have been saved, look at that, through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Of course, both the grace and the faith, gifts of God, not as a result of works, and I could add faith plus works, so that, why? So that no one may boast, so that no one may get to heaven and have any boast that they did anything by way of their works to accomplish salvation in their life. And then you remember <coughs> from uh, Romans 3.20, look there. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Why? Why is that? Well, because God has a standard to get right with him. Perfect obedience, lifelong to his law. You can't get there from where you're at. Neither can I. So we need somebody else's perfect obedience to law. Now it was Jesus and his righteousness put on our account. So, as Bible-believing Christians who believe these great five solas of the Reformation, we are, we are very familiar with this reality of sola fide. Again, not faith plus works. Faith alone. This is what Jesus is making very clear in verses 11 to 21 to Nicodemus, maybe his disciples, and for sure everybody else down through church history. Look in verse 15. So that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Verse 16. Whoever believes in him shall not perish. Verse 18. He who believes is not judge. So it's all about believing. It's all about faith. 
and faith alone. Sorry for the Marco Rubio interruption here. I can't help it today. Now, what is so fascinating about this is the fact that it comes right on the heels of verses 1 through 10. Now, I just want to stop and I want to get your ticker into gear. All right? Jesus is talking to an unbeliever here in Nicodemus. He's talking to a man, as we learn, who is steeped in the religion of apostate Judaism. And he starts out with truly, truly. And he delivers, as we saw in verses 1 to 10, the truth that regeneration is the divine work of God alone that man makes no contribution to. I I can't stress it enough. Jesus' point cannot be made any clearer in verses 1 to 10 and then without any explanation at all, without any transition. Jesus takes the next part of the same conversation, starting in verse 11, and turns it into a monologue and says this, anyone can be saved who believes. Now, would you just think that through like a thinking Christian for me? Once again, we run into, on the one hand, the doctrine of divine sovereignty and the doctrine of human responsibility, human faith, human belief. And there are serious warnings in this text, if you look at it. If you don't believe, you will be judged. If you don't believe in Christ savingly, you will be condemned. Which means that if you don't believe in Christ savingly, you are responsible 100% for your unbelief. And then on the other hand, if you do believe, you will have eternal life. Guaranteed. And you will not perish eternally in hell. So, there is... Human responsibility delivered both negatively and positively. So in verses 1 to 10, again, clear presentation of God's absolute sovereignty and salvation. And then right behind it, in verses 11 to 21, clear presentation of human responsibility and the question that any thinking person has to ask is how in the world do those two truths come together? How can salvation be solely and completely and only a sovereign work of God and anybody be held responsible for believing or not believing? How can both of those realities be true? At the same time, and then further, notice this. Most people, when they are engaged in evangelism, would avoid this issue like the plague. Many Christians don't even want to discuss this issue amongst themselves, even though it's clearly here in Scripture. Most Christians in witnessing to 
unbelievers would want to keep this apparent, and notice I use the word apparent paradox, far away from the conversation. But they would be doing exactly the opposite of what Jesus just did. Jesus is talking here to an unbeliever. Jesus very straightforwardly, in the clearest terms possible, presents to Nicodemus in this whole text the twin, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> twin parallel truths of divine sovereignty and salvation and human responsibility. And he does it all in one conversation. This is completely a work of God. You cannot make yourself meet the necessary condition of being born again, but, comma, if you don't believe, you will be held responsible for not believing. You will perish eternally if you don't believe, and you will receive eternal life if you do. Now, these two truths will always run parallel they will never come together. They will never intersect for us in this life. The fact that we don't understand how these two truths can be true at the same time only proves that we are fallen human beings. This doesn't say anything about God. Our inability to harmonize these two truths in this life are just a reflection of our fallenness and our puny little brains. Now, as frustrating as it is to think about these two truths cannot be harmonized in our human mind. Our minds are, are limited, you have to understand, by our humanness and by our, our fallenness. They are, they are no comparison to the infinite, limitless mind of God. Okay? You have to remember that. And all I can say is that the Word of God, in the Word of God, these two truths all over the place are taught with equal force and equal clarity. And the only answer for us is that we are to believe them both with all of our hearts. And the one... Divine sovereignty will inform your worship. The other human responsibility should motivate your evangelism to share the gospel with others. Now, we have well-intentioned people, very gifted people, far more gifted than me, very well-known preachers and theologians and commentators who have tried their best to, to harmonize these truths together, theologically speaking. But listen, I've looked at a lot of them. Anybody who ever tries to do that will always destroy one or the other or both of them when they try. The bottom line is, you will never figure this out. So stop trying to figure it out. I can't answer the apparent paradox. I can't solve the dilemma. And believe me, it's been a mind-bending dilemma for me as well. Okay? Maybe too mind-bending. But 
what I can do for you today is hopefully make you more comfortable with your inability not to get it. Are you, are you ready for that? I mean, that's what I had to come to. Let me just get comfortable with this. So can, can we just be okay with not getting it? Let me start there. I'm telling you, the only way not to go crazy with thinking about this is just to be content with not getting it. Okay? And you have to understand that when the Bible deals with these things, it just doesn't explain itself. God says, I'm going to put it all in there. This is the truth, but I'm not explaining it because he doesn't have to. He's not obligated to let you breathe another minute. He doesn't want to. So there's never any effort to make any explanation of this in any kind of way on any page of Scripture. And that just has to be the way God wants it because that's the way it is. Now, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to show you a little example of this. A little bit of a different angle. But it's still, this example is going to drive the point home that there are things in this Bible that are totally true, but we can't reconcile them with our minds at the same time. And I'm going to take you to Isaiah 10. If you have your Bible, or you can look up on the screen at Isaiah 10. Here we go with the knowledge that God has a sovereign will. Whatever He purposes, He brings to pass. Whatever He wills, He does. The will of the Lord cannot ever be thwarted. Okay? No random molecules flying around outside of His sovereignty. Another RC quote. He does what He wants. Listen, in the will of the life of every human being, believers and unbelievers, the Bible cannot be clearer about this fact. So we come to this 10th chapter of Isaiah. And God introduces Assyria, this pagan, very pagan, idolatrous nation. And he introduces them in a very interesting way in verse 5. Look how he starts out by saying, woe to Assyria. Now that word, woe, man, when you see that word in the Bible, that's a little three-letter word, but let me tell you, that is a word of terrible, frightening distress that signifies destruction and judgment. God is bringing divine judgment upon Assyria when he says, Woe to Assyria. But then next, very interesting, look what he says in verse 5. Talking about Assyria. The rod of my anger and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. In other words, Assyria, God is saying, is a weapon in the hands of God. God is picking up Assyria like a weapon in order to unleash his wrath. Notice they are the rod. Assyria is the rod of God's anger, the staff in whose hands is his indignation. Now, who is this wrath for? Who's fixing to get it here? Verse 6, I send it 
Assyria, against a godless nation and commission it against the people of my fury. Sad designation, because he's talking about Israel. God picked Assyria and sent Assyria as a destroyer against, at that time, apostate, idolatrous Israel, which still is today. Assyria, listen carefully, was God's tool of judgment against Israel. And you may know the story of the Assyrian invasion of the northern kingdom. In 722 B.C., they took them captive. There was a massacre. Many, many people were slaughtered. Look what it says next in verse 6. To capture booty and to seize plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. And that is exactly what happened to Israel. So those hyper-dispensationalists today who are all about, you know, connecting Israel still as the chosen people of God in an incorrect way need to go back and see what God will do if you get out of line as a nation. And then you come to verse 7. And it starts to get real interesting here. Look what it said. Speaking about Assyria. Yet, it does not so intend, nor does it plan so in its heart. So God is saying, I'm going to use Assyria to do this, but this is not Assyria's plan to do this against Israel. This is not Assyria choosing to do this. This is not their intention. This is what I, God, in choosing to work through Assyria to do, and they're going to do it. And then next, in verse 7, but rather its purpose, Assyria's purpose, is to destroy and cut off many nations. So Assyria was targeting all kinds of nations, and you get the names, you can see them on the screen in verse 9, I won't read them all, that identify some of them. So, Assyria has their plans, but God says, I have my plan. And without them intending to do it or planning it, God is picking them up and using them as a weapon of judgment and wrath against his chosen people, Israel, who are idolatrous at the time. But remember, what did verse 5 say? It started out with, Woe to Assyria. Incredibly. In verse 12, look at it. So it will be when the Lord completed all His work on Mount Zion, which that represents Israel, and on Jerusalem, He will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. And then it goes on in verses 13 to 15, you can read it later, to quote what the king of Assyria said when he became proud and launched that attack against Israel. And God says, now I'm going to destroy him. Look at verse 16 through 18. 
Therefore, the Lord God of hosts will send a wasting disease among his stout warriors, Assyria's. And under his glory, a fire will be kindled like a burning flame. And the light of Israel will become like a fire and a, his holy one a flame. And it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in a single day. And he will destroy the glory of his forest and of his fruitful garden, both soul and body. And it will be as when a sick man wastes away. Now put your mind in gear here. This is incredible. God punishes a nation and a king for doing what God picked them up and made them do. And he even puts in there, it wasn't their intention. They didn't plan this in their hearts. He says, I am using them. I am causing them to do this. And now he's punishing them severely for doing it. And there's absolutely no explanation in the Bible given for this at all. So I use this example to get you to understand there is no way to humanly harmonize these things. Full responsibility for pride and arrogance fell on the king of Assyria and a total massacre fell on the people of Assyria even though they were acting through the divine decree of God and they bore full responsibility for what they did. This again is an illustration of those parallel realities of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And like it or not, folks, they will always be parallel and they will always have to be understood that way in this life. Sinners bear the full weight of responsibility for their acts of defiance against God, even when God is using them to accomplish His purposes. Now, We've read that, and as Dr. Lawson always likes to say, not hard to understand, that's just hard to swallow for a lot of people. And those kind of people who can't swallow this like to make up all kinds of interpretive gymnastics out of the Scripture to try to explain this away, but I'm here to tell you it simply cannot be explained with human understanding in any example. But let me give you a couple more. Just I want to drive this in your brain, okay? And you know this one. You've heard me quote it a million times. Peter's preaching. It's the day of Pentecost. Look at Acts 2, 22, 23. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge, which means foreordained of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men, the Romans, and putting to death. 
This is the predetermined plan of God. Every actor in the situation. And yet Peter says, you did it. You nailed him to the cross. And we know from the teaching of Jesus that they were to be held accountable for that. Jesus said their house was going to be left to them desolate. And it was in 70 AD. Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. Not one stone left upon another. 1.1 million Jews died in the slaughter and 97,000 were enslaved as judgment for Israel rejecting her Messiah. It was the predetermined plan of God for all of this to happen. And yet the actors in the situation bore the full responsibility for it. And if they didn't repent and believe before they died, they're still bearing the full responsibility for it right now in hell. The worst kind of judgment that exists. But how can that be? How can they bear the responsibility for Jesus being nailed to the cross and put to death when God predetermined the who, what, when, and where in every aspect of events? Well, Acts 4, verses 27 to 28 goes into greater detail. Listen to this one. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant whom you anointed. Here we get names. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So all of those people, Herod, Pilate, Jews, Gentiles, everybody involved in the, in the unjust execution of Jesus, no doubt, listen to me, they were doing what they wanted to do. Unrebellion. Uh, unbelief and rebellion against God. They didn't have any thoughts of God's sovereign predetermined plan in their brains. They're doing this in willful rebellion, but at the same time, every one of them were carrying out to the nth detail, the predestined purpose of God. They were doing what they wanted, but it's predestined and every one of them were held eternally accountable for their actions. How do we reconcile that? We don't. Not in this life. Not with our human minds. Folks, what I'm telling you is we, we, we believe the Bible to be the Word of God. So what we have to do is believe that these both these realities are true and they're right and they're just and God is just every time He does it. And we have to be content with the fact that we're just not going to understand how in this life. Now, I'm sorry. We got plenty of time left. I just looked at my watch. We're doing real good on time. I got to give you a little more example. I want to make sure you get this. Romans 9. Everybody ready for that? Here we go. Romans 9. Turn your Bible. You can look on the screen. Let's start with uh, 10 to 19. Okay. Not only this. But there was Rebecca also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. 
For the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad. So that God's purpose according to His choice would stand. Not because of works, but because of Him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. Now you got to understand, don't equate God's hatred with human hatred. Don't be a fool. God's hatred is a holy hatred. That's another sermon, but let's keep reading. What will we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there? May it never be, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills, or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? Now you have to understand there, in that verse 19, what is Paul saying? He's saying, he's making the argument, how in the world can God find fault with anybody? If he's making all the choices and I'm not a factor how can he hold me responsible for rejecting him? Who can resist that sovereign will? So what Paul, he knows, the, reason, the whole reason why he makes this statement is he knows when you read all of that, you're going to say, this is not what? Fair. Well, Paul gives us an answer though. You ready for this one? Verse 20, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? You, you want to know what that is in the Greek? Shut your mouth. Who are you to be asking that of God? Who are you to be asking how God operates? It's right what he's doing, even though we can't understand it. He's God. And then, then he kicks it into high gear. Let's just go on, keep reading. Verse 21. Or does not the powder have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use? And another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. All that clear teaching on the sovereignty of God in salvation. And then, 
in the very next chapter. Turn over to Romans 10. Romans 10, verse 9 through 11. I know it's still in this Bible. Let's see. Okay. What did I say? 9 through 11. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth confession confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Skip to verse 13. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 9. Absolute sovereignty of God and salvation. Romans 10. Necessary responsibility of man to be saved. I forgot it uh, Wednesday night, but I remember it now. Spurgeon's doorway to the Metropolitan Tabernacle. I believe it said, whoever calls on the Lord will be saved on the, when you were walking in. But when you were walking out of Spurgeon's church, chosen before the foundation of the world was above the door. All right. So how do we respond to these things? Well, now I'm going to tell you how. We have a mandate to follow because we don't know who God has chosen and who he has not. Nobody ever would have thought I was back in my day. Again, as Spurgeon said, you know, I mean, if we could pull up the shirt tails of everybody that, that was elect from before the foundation world and they had a yellow stripe, we just go around lifting up shirt tails and we just preach the gospel to them. Well, we, we don't have that. That, that. that ain't how it works. But here's how it does work. Next two verses, Romans 10, 14 and 15. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they've not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So what do we do? Do we get in a corner with a bunch of commentaries and try to find a solution to how these twin parallels work? Do, do we try to bend our brains to solve the apparent paradox? No. We have to do what we can do and what we are responsible to do and what we have been mandated to do. Preach the word. I can't sit here and worry about God's sovereignty over who he chooses Preach the word to everybody. Communicate the truth. That's why I'm here week after week. That's what I've given my life to. This mandate. I'm following it. I can't put it all together. This subject. But I know this. The Bible is clear. Anybody. Anybody who calls on the name of the Lord in Bible repentance and saving faith will be saved. Jesus says, anybody that comes to him, he certainly will not cast out. And the only way they hear about how to come to him outside of reading is the Bible 
is we have to tell them. We have to tell them about Jesus. We have to tell them about the person and work of Christ. And at the end of the day, mind-boggling as all of this is, I think of Romans 11, verse 33. I think it just puts it best. Oh, the depths of the riches, of the wisdom, and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment and unfathomable his ways. What God knows in his fullness and God understands in his completeness is just unsearchable to us. His ways, his judgments, and the way he operates are at a depth, folks, that you have to get that we just can't fathom. Again, I'll quote Johnny Mack, I always do. I don't want a God who's just like me. Because then he'd be just like me. I don't want a God I can unfully understand. Okay? Be content with the fact that you cannot understand how sovereignty and responsibility harmonize in the mind of God. There, there are plenty of real smart people out there who would like to give God a little advice and, and their idea of how these things harmonize. A lot of people in the church, you know. But I mean, again, they need to read again what's next in Romans eleven thirty four. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Does anybody think God's waiting for somebody to give him some hints on how he can simplify all this or do it better? <laughs> Nobody knows the full mind of the Lord. Nobody counsels God. What an idiot you are if you try to do that or twist the scripture to fit your human reasoning. People, Plenty of people in the church do. Furthermore, he is not obligated to give us any more information than we have because look what it says next in verse 35. Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? Who, think God, who thinks God owes us anything? He owes us nothing but wrath. Does he really owe us an explanation? No. No, in the end, the next verse completes it all and says it best. Verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. Period. So, I hope in some way I've been able to help you get a little more comfortable with just not getting how sovereignty and responsibility come together. Let's just be content in our ignorance, can't we? And then that's right. And then next time we come to John, we'll move forward with this section that that proclaims the tremendous truth that whosoever believes will not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray. Oh God, how we thank you today. You, you are God. Can we just be content with that? Lord, can we just let you be God? We, we don't have any, we don't have anything to add.
We certainly don't want to twist this Bible. A lot of people can't handle this. In fact, I think it's it's a work that you do for those, those of us who do or come to the ability to be content with the apparent paradox. I think that's a work that you do. And I'm grateful for it because it's just so very clear in Scripture. So I pray today that uh, that this has helped to, to at least help us be content. And, and Lord, uh, how forward do we look to the day in eternity when I believe it all just is going to be like, wow, okay, this is great. I can't understand that now, but I believe we'll understand it then. But only for those who believe. If there are any here today that have not bowed to the knee to King Jesus, I pray you draw them with the effectual call and save them. And we thank you, Lord, for Sunday, your day. No better way to spend our day than being in the house of God, worshiping the holy God in spirit and in truth. Bless you, Lord, today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.